new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. And on today's podcast, we have with us Marlene Rogers. And she works as a story editor on feature films and documentary television series and makes short films driven by her personal passions. Her most recent film is a collaboration with her husband, Franco Ponte. Dreams of the Dead tell the story of Marlene's journey in the aftermath of the sudden and accidental death of her grandmother, Baca, and the vivid dreams that were intrinsic to navigating that loss. Visit the film's website, www.dreamsofthedead.com, to post your own memory of a loved one. And uh, we will post the link for the 18-minute film when we post this podcast. Marlene, um, welcome to the podcast. I just want to say before I start, I really enjoyed the film. It was really amazing and a great a great uh, piece to honor your grandmother. And uh, I just love how it had kind of this documentary feel. I love the addition of the old photographs. Um, and you and you just, you know, you added just like a magical kind of piece to it, which is the narrating yourself, the story, uh, along with the music. And uh, every now and then you'd kind of see some like really cool, uh, I guess, film tricks with like um, little memorial pieces or things of your grandmother kind of coming in and out of screen. But I really enjoyed the film. And yeah, Marlene, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's really really wonderful to to be here and to be able to be part of the ongoing conversation you guys are having about grief dreams and uh i really appreciate your kind words about the film it was it really was a labor of love and uh uh we we took our time putting it together it was sort of a project on the side as we my husband and i both work in film and we're busy with other things but eventually we got it done and uh it was always something important to to me to do personally so thank you for having me on yeah, I also uh, watched it and it was uh, it was great and I'm I'm glad you really a little a big chunk was about your dreams that you had. And I can't wait to sort of talk about those in a little while, but first I want to ask you about what got you into film. Like what was that all about? Oh, good question. So, I mean, I've always loved storytelling and there's that quote it's uh, attributed to Carl Jung that says, you know, if you want to know what you should be doing with your life. Look at what you did naturally when you were five. You know, what did you love to do? And I always loved to put on shows with my friends and, you know, create stories for those shows. And um, so I guess my love of story kind of took me into studying English literature and focusing on dramatic literature and Shakespeare as an undergraduate and then in my master's. But meantime, I met my husband and he was starting to work in the film industry and introducing me to, you know, films I'd never seen before, and film was becoming more and more a part of my, my life. And I just felt like I want to be part of this kind of story, visual storytelling. In Canada at the time, it was the late 1980s, and there was like a real creative explosion going on, especially in Toronto, with filmmakers like Adam McGowan and Patricia Rosima, Bruce McDonald, starting to make their feature films. And so my husband and I were both born and raised in Vancouver, and we thought, let's let's head to Toronto and be part of the Canadian film industry and, and work in that. And that's kind of how it all got started. Wow. Do you see a, uh, a change in the technology and making it easier to uh, like edit film now than it was once before in the 1980s? Absolutely. Yeah. When we first um, shot the footage for our film, we shot it on 16 millimeter film. And when we were trying to visualize, there are, as you guys mentioned, a, a lot of special effects because I really wanted 
especially with the dream sequences, to be able to sort of bring those to life. And uh, so we were imagining, you know, at the time doing lots of work with an optical printer, and I don't even know what the processes would have been because I'm not a technical person, but they would have been expensive and they would have been time consuming. And by by virtue of our procrastination, technology changed and it got a lot easier to finish the film and to, to visualize the film in the ways that we wanted to. We were really lucky to work with a, um, a visual effects artist who's based in Slovenia. And we have a mutual friend with him. Um, and uh, so he kind of in his computer was able to composite the kinds of images that we wanted to see. We came up with a plan for doing things like shooting the dreams so that we could see my grandmother sort of coming to life. And so we, for that, we used my mom as a body double. And then our, our visual effects artist was able to take photographs of my grandmother and put her, her head onto my mom's three-dimensional body. And so it's a, you know, a, lot of, a lot of thinking about composition and length of time of holding on those shots so that it feels real and doesn't feel like a cutout. But it was it was a really interesting process just to sort of see how he did that and how we had to sort of prepare in our shoot so that we could have good matches between, say, for example, the lighting in a in a photograph of my grandmother and then the lighting we would create in filming a scene with my mom as the body double so that when we put the, the head of my grandmother onto that, that body, then it would match. So... Um, it's yeah. Anyways, all of that's a very long answer to say that technology has changed so profoundly. It's so much easier to edit. You don't have that physical process of cutting film and splicing it together. Everything kind of happens at the click of a keyboard, and it's really it's it's a wonderful gift that really liberates filmmaking. But then it also just sort of changes the mental process too, because there used to be more sort of physical work involved, which would kind of give you that thinking time and mulling time. And so now. I think artists need to, when they're working digitally and working on a keyboard, just find different ways of, of where that kind of time comes in for them. Yeah, I got, I got that feeling. You know, you really captured a a moment and it made me think of like when I was like very nostalgic growing up, a lot of the kind of doc, Canadian documentaries, especially like the PBS type of documentaries, I guess Canadian, what's the PBS version? CBC? Mm. I think yeah <laughs> but uh, yeah yeah it just it had that feel to it you know but it wasn't out of place it was seamless with it and and you just talked about the work to go into it to get your mom to do the body double to kind of stick with that whole theme of it uh just just a wonderful kind of nostalgic feeling wrapped around and you also talked about some themes and I, I felt really linked to some of them you know especially being Canadian is is the immigrant story actually because you know your your grandparents came from croatia is that right yes they did yeah 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 and then like setting up in canada and and also bringing with them their skills and abilities and setting up a farm uh, that's a story of a lot of immigrants in canada uh, especially par- like parents of people our age and stuff so it's it's cool to kind of tap into that you tapped into the emotion of that because then you talk about the loss of losing the farm and all that um, so, and that was another big thing. And the other thing that, that was really drawn to me was, you know, your grandmother, your Baca was very similar to my grandmother in that, you know, she died in a very similar way. Like she, oh, you know, wow. your, your grandmother kind of fell downstairs and had a trauma to her head. My grandmother did, had the same thing. She fell and, and had trauma to her head. So like, you know, you really touched on a couple of nerves there where I, oh, I felt that. I felt that, especially the pictures, you know, those old pictures. I mean, it's amazing the way you incorporated everything into a seamless production. 
thank you so much. And I, I'm really sorry to hear that your grandmother died that way. And um, yeah, it's it's. I think when when somebody is healthy and they die an accidental death, it's a different it's a different kind of loss, different kind of trauma. Like with my grandfather, I was very close to him too, and yet the film doesn't focus on him because you know he he had a lung condition for the whole my whole life, right? So I always knew that there was a there would come a time when he would die, and and that is you know kind of how he reached his death, and there was you know, time where he was sick and, and time to process it before he was gone. But with my grandmother, and I'm sure for you too, there was just that feeling that this person was just here, life was just going on, and then suddenly they weren't. And I think that really can make a, I mean, it's sort of, I guess, obvious to say that the way a person dies affects the way that the loved ones grieve. But I've found in my life, whenever there's preparation for a death, it's it's almost like you go through a lot of that emotional grieving process with the person while they're still alive and you have those opportunities to say goodbye. So it's not as traumatic in some ways as when, when the death is sudden and unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. And I I would say the difference is that my grandmother did die at a later age. So we Mm. got the chance to kind of uh, prepare for that. Whereas you didn't necessarily, she died relatively young. Uh, so, so she didn't have you didn't have that chance you know I was a shock it was a shock for you yeah um, yeah I was just wondering um when so when you decided to make this film did you have the idea in your head for a while and then finally decide to do it or was this something where you just came to you and said you know what let's make this well you know it, it was interesting because after my grandmother died I remember this day that I was walking down the street and I was thinking about like things that she made like little lace doilies and I was thinking about her baking and just things like you know cans of magic brand baking powder and just all these sort of everyday things I associated with her and and I thought oh it'd be really cool to somehow do some kind of art project about sort of those everyday kind of reminders of who she was and you know especially as a woman whose you know sort of domain was the home right where things are are just kind of ordinary things that we all grow up with right and and those were the the artifacts of her life. So I had that idea fairly early on. And then I also, you know, as soon as she died, I remember the day that, maybe the day after her accident, she was still in a coma in the hospital. And we drove from our house to the hospital and we drove past where you would turn off to go to the farm. And I remember just having that realization sort of for the first moment that it was like, oh my God, she's essentially gone. I mean, we knew that she wasn't going to recover. But it's like the farm is going to be gone now too, right? Like how can we hold on to this place that means so much to us when, you know, our lives are so different, right? And so modern and urban and and suddenly the keeper of this this place that seems really magical. You were talking about, you know, immigrant families. And I think for me, part of what was really cool about Baca's farm was just that it was, um, you know, she had like a smoke shack, she had sheep, she had a ringer washer, they made wine with a, a wooden press, you know, <laughs> and then in my own, you know, family, we lived in like a very suburban house, and all my friends did, and so it was sort of like I had this kind of living, magical museum where, you know, all these cool things could happen, I could run around in the fields and pick berries and so it was a really beautiful connection to that place. And, and when Baca died, I, I felt like I was not only losing her, but that inevitably that process of losing the place would, would sort of kick into motion because we knew that 
you know, there was development happening all around the farm already. So when the, the farm finally was sold and, you know, we knew it was going to, the house was going to be torn down, by that point I'd started working in film and actually Franco and I were living in Toronto. So we were sort of separated from, from the place physically anyways. And I really wanted to, to be there for the demolition. And we, it just seemed like an obvious thing to to film it. And then this idea of kind of the, the artifacts of people's lives and places and all those tangible things that connect us to someone when we've lost them, that sort of started to be sort of the thematic material. And we thought, well, what's you know, sort of more perfect than the demolition of a house to kind of represent the, the loss of a person? And so we we gathered together. We um, asked people for what were known at the time as short ends of film. So when you would shoot a roll of film, often there'd be a little bit left at the end, and it wouldn't be long enough to want to start another take. And so those would just be, those bits of film would be stored. And so lots of people who were producers, you know, or production companies, would have a bunch of short ends, and they didn't really know what to do with. So we started asking people we knew for their short ends. <laughs> and so a lot of our um, Footage came from that, and and it consequently meant that like we had, you know, some of it was black and white, some was color, some was really fine green film, some was like low light sensitive film that was greenier. So we knew that the film was going to look a little bit like a patchwork, and that was okay with us because we felt like, well, that's sort of the way memory is too, and this is kind of a collage. And and uh, so yeah, so I guess that's really it was the the knowledge that the house was coming down that catalyzed our desire to make a film. And at first I thought it was just going to be about the house and the old photographs. We'd, we'd actually found all the negatives for the photographs. Um, Frank and I had lived in the house for a short while after my grandmother died and she had this shoebox that was full of negatives. So it was like hundreds of images. Wow. Yeah, it was really quite amazing because I'd never seen that box. I just, you know, and also because my grandmother was from Croatia, a lot of photographs she would send away to relatives, right, and not get copies of them. It was, you know, when I was growing up, it was before, you know, you got the free second set of prints. <laughs> so <laughs> so there were images in there that I'd never seen, right, because the, the photos had gone off. So we, we knew we wanted to make a film about the demolition of the house and the photographs that sort of captured the life. But then I had gone through this series of dreams that had been so vivid about Baca and about her death. And I really felt like that was sort of the, going to be in a way kind of the glue that would hold it together. And, and the the thing that sort of defined for me, I guess, the shape of my story, because the dreams did have sort of a pattern of taking me through the arc of my loss in a way that was really comforting. And then I didn't know this when we set out to make the film, but when we actually filmed the demolition of the house, there was that same kind of sense of kind of unusual, surprising comfort that came from, I think, you know, I'd been for many years kind of dreading the, the demolition of the house and feeling like this is going to be a terrible, traumatic loss. And yet when the house actually came down, it just cause it was more kind of a a feeling of, kind of overwhelming love and richness that I had had this place and that it was sort of within me and within my history and those feelings of loss didn't feel so threatening and and the process with the dreams was was very much the same kind of moving from a sense of dread and and um 
and distress to a sense of like, no, I've I've had this incredible relationship with my grandmother and this is this is here it's part of me. And I don't think when people are first grieving that they're going to be in that place, right? It doesn't it wouldn't make sense. You're you're in the trauma when you first lose somebody. But it's you know, I, I think that you don't really when people, you know, many people who are grieving complain about the fact that people will say to them, move on, get over it. And, and I agree wholeheartedly that those are not the kinds of things that are helpful for a person who's grieving to hear. But I, And I don't think that you do ever really get over a loss, but I think the quality of the loss transforms over time. And I mean, I guess in some circumstances, people don't heal, but in the ideal circumstance, I feel like part of the healing is just coming to kind of recognize that ongoing connection that you have with with your loved one even if they're gone and you know i i don't actually believe in an afterlife many people do but even though i don't believe in an afterlife i really believe in those connections being ongoing you know that are are internal for us and that sense of love and you know i feel like that's that's the point you you ideally move to in your grieving process is just to feel that sense of no nothing's been taken away from me it's it's all still here. Right. Yeah. And no, I hear what you're saying. And that love, those memories, as long as you can remember them, <laughs> they're right there. And they impacted your life in such a way where it's like, how can you not, you know, be so grateful for those, those moments? And like yeah. I have the same thing with my dad. It's like everything I'm doing now is because of who he was and even how he died, which, you know, propelled me to be where I am today. And I love where I am today. And so I, I give him credit for being that person for me to get me here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how, uh, how it all just happens and what grief is. I'm curious because you said like when the house fell down or got, got ripped down, um, you felt a sense of peace. Do you think it helped that you lived there for that period of time to really like facilitate some of the grief emotions? I'm sure it did. Yeah. I'd had, you know, so many different phases of my life there, right? Because when I was a small child, my my grandparents would babysit me if my mom was working or, you know, I just spent a lot of time around there. So there was sort of all those layers of time and history. And then, you know, when I became a teenager, my relationship with my grandparents, you know, became more, more, you know, it, it shifts and it's different. And then at that phase in my life, I would like ride my bike over to their place to visit them and say hi. And that was kind of a, a fun thing to do. And then Franco and I had actually just been together for a number of months before Baca died. And he was so present to my grief and so much part of my processing of her death. It was really a beautiful thing that kind of solidified, you know, our, our sense of ourselves as a couple you know and and that we were always going to be there for each other um but we weren't living together yet and we were both you know fairly young too um i i was living at home and franco had just moved out into his first apartment and so when bacchus had died nobody in the family wanted to sell the house yet nobody was emotionally ready and but it you know you can't really leave a house just sitting there and so Franco and I were talking about moving in together. And so so we said, well, you know, we could move in and take care of the house. And um, so that sort of worked for everyone. And it was great because then it was like this whole other chapter of my adult life started to unfold there. And, and 
it was interesting because we only lived there for about a year and a half because I kind of at a certain point realized it's like, okay, this is sort of my childhood place. And I think that, you know, to really be an adult, I need to move somewhere else. <laughs> so that was, and that was fine. But I think that was really, really special to have that time there. And, and it was sort of a continuity because even though we'd kind of, you know, we were university students or I was, Franco was starting to work already. And so even though, you know, we'd kind of moved our lifestyle into my grandmother's house, her life was still there too. There was still sheep and my uncle would come and look after them. And there, every year there would be a runt of the litter and the runt of the litter would, you know, come into the house and be bottle fed and be running around in the basement. So there, it was really, it was really pretty cool just to be able to kind of, integrate my childhood into my young adulthood and uh and then when the house came down just to kind of look at like as the outside of the house came down and you could see all the rooms it was like i felt like i was sort of simultaneously having like five memories from five different times of my life while i was looking at the rooms you know and it was it was very magical yeah i remember that from the documentary and i thought that would have been a trip if i got to see my childhood home uh in that kind of cross section (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it's like a doll's house or something, you know? Yeah. It's 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 interesting. Wow, that's so I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That was like the first time you guys moved in together. So that was its own journey in itself. In yeah, for sure. Wow. For sure. Yeah. Wow. All right. So I think this is a good time to start talking about some of the dreams you had and how they changed over time. I'm guessing you had a bunch of different ones. I know you mentioned some with Baca and then also some with the house itself uh could we just talk about the that one with the house first i think it'd be really cool so the house was kind of a the house was there in a lot of dreams and I, in fact i still dream about it quite often often i'm like living in it or going to visit baka or you know so so the house was definitely an icon in the dreams but the dreams focused more on on baka and the pattern with the early dreams was that i would see her and I would know that she was dead. And so I would feel this sense of bewilderment and like, so why is she here? Why does she, is she walking around? How can this be? She's dead. But so she would be dead, but alive. So she wouldn't look totally alive, but she wouldn't look dead. Um, it was sort of mysterious. And so what would sometimes, that, I'm trying to think what that would look like. So is it like you could see through see through her a little bit? Like, how does that look? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because you know how dreams are. They're sort of slippery too, right? So I felt like it was almost sort of like she had like a gray cast to her, like as though her color was sort of a bit desaturated or something, you know, or that somehow, I don't know, that, that you wouldn't see like dirt on her or anything like that, but you'd feel like she came out of the earth or something. It was one of those dream things where it's not really quite a totally visual thing your other senses are involved with it too and so it was hard to pin down and hard to know how to capture that you know in in the film too right and and uh one of the things that we did is using sort of a, a black and white image of baka in the first first series of dreams where everything else is sort of in color which i mean is sort of in a way simplistic but also in a kind of true to how it was in my dream too where she did feel like she was slightly a different different saturation level than the rest of reality somehow. Mm. Um, and the, the dreams always felt like a little bit, there was a bit of guilt or something because it would kind of be like she would just turn up. Uh, one of them and the one that sort of talked about the most in the 
as the first dream in, in the film, is she was just suddenly there at my mom's house with like shopping bags as though she'd just been to the grocery store. And there was always this sense of like, oh my God, was she actually not dead? Have I, you know, for the last year or two years or whatever the time frame would be when I would have the dream, been just ignoring her and she's been over there just living her life and I haven't been aware of it. And so there was, yeah, I, I felt in those early dreams kind of bewildered because I would have this sense of guilt, but then it wasn't like a relationship that I carried guilt about. It had been a very positive relationship and I didn't feel that there'd been any lack on my part in the relationship. So I couldn't quite figure it out. It's like, where is the guilt feeling coming from? And why am I dreaming that I've somehow neglected her and that she's still alive, but I've neglected her because I thought she was dead. And I've always been kind of lucky enough that when I was a fairly small child, I I kind of intuitively figured out how to interact with my dreams. I remember I was having like a recurring series of bad dreams when I was like, you know, five or six or something. And I can remember exactly where I was in my mom's house when I, I said to myself, okay, I am not going to have a bad dream tonight. Now, whether it was coincidence, you know, or luck or, or, you know, somehow being able to interact with my dreams, I didn't. And I found sort of from that point that I sort of started to kind of try to have this dialogue with my dream life. And so when I had a series of these perplexing dreams about Waka being alive but dead or dead but alive and me sort of having neglected her, I, I wanted to know what those were about and why I was feeling guilty. And so I decided to kind of form the intention that, that the next time I had the dream, I would try to ask that question of her or answer that question for myself. I just wanted to sort of pose the question. And uh, then the next dream I had was, the, you know, also um, figures into the, the film. Um, it was a dream that I was walking by a bakery and my grandmother, you know, like many grandmothers of her generation, did a lot of baking just as a home baker. But um, there was this bakery and I was walking past it with my mom and I looked into the window of the bakery and I saw amongst the many women who were working in the bakery, that Baca was one of them. And, and it was one of those things where I just sort of, it was like a fleeting glance. And at first I almost didn't realize it. And then I sort of like did a double take. It was like, oh my God, that was Baca in there. And I looked back and she kind of gave me this coy sort of smile and wave, kind of as if to say, hey, I guess you didn't expect to see me here. And uh, in the dream, I was sort of satisfied by that. But my mom had realized something was going on and she was, you know, very kind of alarmed by it. She was like, what's what's going on? Why is Baca there? How can she be alive? She's supposed to be dead. And so in that dream, my mom sort of became the embodiment of all those questions that I've been having. Um, Because the recurring dreams of Baca kind of mysteriously appearing places had been happening for a while at that point. I can't, it was so many years ago, I don't remember the overall timelines, but I'd say at least six months I'd been having the recurring dreams. And so now in this dream, my mom asked those questions, and then I became the voice of answering my questions. And I said to her, you know, you don't question it. It just, these dreams are just a gift. It's just a gift to see her. Because as much as I'd had sort of the, that discomforting feeling of like, oh, have I neglected her? One thing that was always present in those dreams was a sense of joy at seeing her. So it would be like this this wonderful gift to get to see her again. And there'd, there'd always be like a moment of strong emotion. 
Um, so I decided, you know, or I told myself in that dream just to kind of go with that and just enjoy that. And and I, I remember like in waking life sort of starting to have the theory that maybe the guilt in those dreams was just maybe some kind of a guilt that... I don't know if, if this is a common thing for people to feel, but almost as you move on, as you, you or not move on, but as your grief sort of starts to transform and you start to go back to your regular life and not be thinking about your grief and your loss all the time, that it's almost like you feel at some unconscious level like you're betraying the person by by having your grief move into a more manageable kind of mode. So I wondered if maybe that was, was what, what the um, the guilt element had been about was that, because I'd say that these dreams, I'm just trying to think, um, my grandmother died in 1985, and I remember really being in the thick of the dreams in 1987 after we'd moved out of her house and into an apartment, and that was when, you know, they were really happening a lot, and when I sort of formed this intention to to question the dreams and had that, sec- that um, bakery dream, which is sort of the second dream that's portrayed in the film. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense in the sense that you decided to leave the house and then you said Mm -hmm. these ramped up a little bit. And then, you know, why you left the house is because you wanted to be more of an adult. You wanted to facilitate the rest of your life. And I can see, yeah, there's probably some guilt or some like, you know, nagging thoughts about that at some level on like, am I moved on too fast? Am I going to forget her? You know, is this, you know, like, is the Mm -hmm. home going to now suffer because of it too because as you left you knew if you're not there there's a high probability that it could be sold and be tor- torn down yes that's right yeah so, yeah that's very interesting and so what did you say because one of the, my favorite lines was um or you actually just said it about the um about accepting these moments is just a gift and i thought that was such a beautiful one-liner <laughs> you know, there's, in dreams, or like, I love how like, there's these one-liners that you can just sit back and reflect on, and almost just meditate on, and they have yeah. so much power to them. Yeah, I mean, our our unconscious is such a beautiful thing, right? Because it's like it's it's almost like we have all the answers within us. It's just a matter of finding our way to them, or them finding their their way up to bubble up to speak to us. And I guess that's why I love dreaming so much and why it's always been such a big part of my life is that it, I feel like it does kind of um, bring you these moments of insight that in a way that's really crystallized, you know, so that you might, you might have those thoughts as you're trying to figure out your life. But I think when you have a really vivid dream that captures an insight, it stays with you in such a powerful way. And, and whether that's just because of the the visualized nature of it or whether it's because of the brain activity that's happening when we're in a REM state and how your brain is, is kind of maybe more open to processing it or able to. I don't know. Um, I know a little bit about um, eye movement desensitization. Uh, it's EMDR. I can't remember the exact term, but it's a it's a kind of therapy that they use with trauma survivors where you basically sort of activate both sides, both hemispheres of the brain, so that while the person is discussing their trauma or processing it, that there's a a brain activity that's happening on a bilateral kind of way. And that's usually achieved through either like a little noise being um, played in headphones on on either side of the ear or tapping on the person's hands or or knees. And uh, so 
and that's associated with rapid eye movement. I'm sorry, I'm probably it would be way better to have a, somebody who actually knows what they're talking about talk about this than me. But but I guess this is what I was kind of thinking about this morning when I was thinking about talking to you guys is just whether that if they have done research on EMDR and why it works to help people to heal from trauma, and it has something to do with the the dialogue between the two hemispheres of the brain and and I just you know in from my layperson's perspective was thinking I guess that's probably going on when we dream as well um because rapid eye movements are are part of EMDR as well and maybe that's the reason why these these insights that come up to us from our dreams do feel so much more powerful and and more um effective at healing us right because they're they're coming from a place where our brain is processing it differently yeah, it's an interesting theory. We just never, we don't know in the sense of if it is in REM that these dreams are occurring, because you can also dream in non-REM that a lot of mm. people don't know about. It's just not as frequent, but you can still do it there too. And okay. so it'd be interesting to sort of see where these dreams occur, These, especially these profound dreams, because there's different types of dreams, as you know, right? There's like the trauma dreams, there's those dreams about continuing bonds. But then there are also these other dreams that you hear a lot, even on the podcast about like the last dream you had, these really profound dreams that can change the way you look at life and, and look at the dreams itself. And it'd be interesting to see where those dreams occur, like in what stage. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, we're, we're not there yet, but I think it's a fascinating question. Yeah, there's so much we don't know about the brain. You know, it's a very magical thing on one level. Like it seems magical because we don't understand it. <laughs> so That's true. One day I'm guessing we're going to be able to record our dreams and then you wouldn't have to, then you can just put those right into your documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't that yeah. be cool, right? And, but it would be so, like, it's so interesting, right? Because they're so multifaceted, right? It's like sometimes in a dream, it's almost like two things are happening at once that are totally different or you're in one location, but it's actually really two places and not even that it's melded, but that they're almost like existing in parallel or something. So it's, uh, yeah, it's like the linear form of film doesn't really do justice to like how how multifaceted a dream is yeah it's uh <clears throat> it's definitely a, a really cool thing that we do as humans um, we have this opportunity to kind of you know rehash our day or, or just mull over things or you know new narratives get introduced to us in our dreams it's, it's, it's an amazing thing what you got the chance to do is something not a lot of people get a chance to do which is really uh, in and really in depth is collect all your memories of your grandmother, you know, the memories, the stories, even even the images of the trinkets, uh, the pictures, and really uh, kind of put those all together in, in film format. And, and, you know, all these beautiful things that really honor the memory. And, and, you know, you as a person, you know, 20 years from now, you know, when you're an old lady, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, you'll, you'll be able to think about that, maybe even watch the film and, and really uh, feel those thing, things again. Like a lot of us, we, um, you know, memory, memory is a crazy thing. You know, you, you might not remember a lot of details about your early life and, you know, childhood, like from myself, like, you know, if I can think back to my childhood home, you know, maybe I was five, six years old. Um, there's a few things that stick out, but I can't go into detail. But mm. what you've done is you've you've literally taken your grandmother's house and all these things. Like that's just solidifying that memory. 
and and really adding to that continuing bond um, that that you have with your grandmother. I think that's incredible, and even down to you know near the end where they're tearing the house down. Yeah, they're tearing the house down, and that's being you know taken away in in real life. But at the end of the day, you reconstructed that home in a film in your memory, which is insane because like you can carry <laughs> that with you. You can carry that with you. You just put it in your pocket. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's kind of interesting, too, because our son is 17. So, of course, you know, he never met Baca. He never saw that place. But, you know, he's seen us editing the film for <laughs> a very long time. And, and so I think he, you know, he feels like a real, you know, visceral connection to the place because he's seen those images and, and lived with those images. And, um, you know, my cousin's daughter is now a mother herself and she's the little girl who appears in the film her and her brother um and she you know has a lot of memories of that place and uh you know now she has her own children and so it's uh sorry i kind of lost my track a little bit there but it's just it's kind of she was really moved to see it because you know she was would have been i guess maybe what eight or nine when we shot those images of her in the barn and that was like the week that the film came, the house was torn down and so she hasn't sort of been able to revisit that place obviously and you know she had her own memories of it when she saw the film it just was kind of um, it was really moving for her because it was she had a very similar kind of relationship to the place as I did you know in terms of, of it being a special childhood place Oh, sorry, I feel like I'm rambling and, and I'm not quite getting to the point of it. But just, I guess that way that the you were talking about how how lucky I am to be, have been able to kind of visualize those memories and capture them. And yes, so now like other generations can, you know, my son who's never experienced the place can actually experience it through the film. And my, you know, my cousin's daughter who did experience it, but, you know, kind of had that those memories cut off at a very young age now as as a woman in her 30s can kind of go back and sort of see this place through new eyes so she's got her own memories but now she's got this other kind of window into the place that where she had all those memories yeah absolutely and what you've created what you've put together it's just a legacy piece that you know you think about your grandparents and the memory it's it's something that you can pass down and it kind of it's kind of melancholic sometimes for me because there are certain things with like my grandparents that I'm like, you know, my my kids, or even my grand my grandkids, you know, they might not know. They won't know that life. They, they won't know what it what was like back then. But, mm -hmm. you know, especially in your family, you know, raising an old farm, like clean our grandkids are our grandkids really going to understand farms. Are they going to understand you know, what gardens are taking care of animals, sheep, all these really cool or, you know, curing, I think what you said, curing meats in the shed mm -hmm. or yeah. making wine, all these things are really, really cool things that like the older generation was into and doing. And, and I think as it, you know, I don't, I don't make wine. I don't, <laughs> cure I wish I could, but all these things. And it's great to hold on to those memories because you can pass it down. That's, that's your legacy. That's your ancestors. That's your culture and understanding all that and then you know having those conversations and now you have it in visual form in 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 the fact it's a movie and you know that's a story that you can hold on to and and that's something i think a lot of people um well i i can speak for myself that that i get sad about a little bit you know even come down to language i mean what 
did they speak Croatian? I'm sure they did. Mm-hmm, they did. Yes. And yeah, so it was interesting, too, because, you know, my dad was Canadian, so we didn't speak Croatian at my my own home. But, you know, Baca and Dido would, would speak Croatian to each other and to me. And so, I, you know, I could understand it very well. But, you know, because I was a little kid, I only spoke it in a very rudimentary way, and I probably spoke back to them in English most of the time. So, hence, I can't really speak the language, but I still can kind of follow a basic conversation. And, uh, yeah, and that's, that's a really cool thing to have that, that transmission of language, right? And, and it's always sort of sad when, when a generation loses that and doesn't have that continuity because it, it gives you a lot of sense of connection. I'm curious about, have you ever asked your mom if she's ever had a dream of her mom? I'm curious what uh-huh. kind of what how they how they talk if it's in Croatian or in Canadian. That's a really great question. I'm going to ask her that today. I yeah, I know she's I know she's dreamt of her mom, I, but uh, I'm I'm going to ask that question. It never occurred to me. So thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking maybe that's why she never talked to you in her dream because she it's like you you never uh, really understood her in waking life. So what could she well, really say in a dream, right? Yeah, but no, I, I mean, I did understand her, you know, because she spoke English too, right? Oh, just, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, oh no, she spoke English, yeah. She just, when she spoke to my grandfather, she would speak to him in Croatian, right? Yeah. So, and because I was around there so much, you know, and it would be about the garden or the meal or so, so all of that I totally, totally understood as a child. It's just now if, you know, if people are speaking Croatian and they're talking about politics or something, it's pretty hard to understand. <laughs> but if they say, do you need to go to the bathroom? I'll totally understand that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's very similar to my experience with my grandparents. My parents, yeah. my grandparents spoke Punjabi and I understand oh. it, but not to the level of like, let's say they're reading the news. I, I can't like, you know, cr- grasp those like formal uh, language, formal Punjabi words and all that. But I always, I always like to think, uh, you know, obviously she passed, but I, I like to think that like in, you know, in our, maybe in the dream world or wherever we get to meet that we don't have that problem anymore. And like, it's more fluid and, and cause there are things that like, you know, I, we didn't get to have certain types of, I guess, in-depth conversation just because of that. But, you know, yeah. I'm sure you felt the same way your grandmother, but like with my grandmother, you know, just in the look and the eye, you can read a lot and communicate with a lot, uh, to a person without verbal. So I think that like, you know, we still had a tight bond and a good connection and obviously you did as well. Yes, for sure. You know, the thing you mentioned uh, at an earlier point too, of just, you know, when people feel like their dreams of, of people they've lost or visitations. And, you know, I was mentioning that I, I don't feel like there's an afterlife or that it is a, a literal visitation, but I have to say that um, even though I'm like this very pragmatic person on that level, I also have like this huge wish for it to be a visitation. When I would have the dreams of her, I would feel like, well, you know, what if I'm wrong? What if it really is a visitation? You know, and it's been this positive visitation. And I, I love that not knowing, right? And that mystery that we have in life that it's like, okay, we all have our own theories, whether we believe that there is a God in an afterlife or, you know, that energy goes on or whether we think that, no, it's all over when, when the body dies. There's still kind of, I guess for me, this kind of like really magical hope of there being real connection. And I have uh, one of my best friends died quite young at the age of 41. And, and uh, after she died, I remember this night where I was sitting there rocking. Uh, my child was a, a baby then to sleep. And I felt like I, she was standing behind me. And, you know, it's just 
to me, like really delicious to kind of entertain that possibility, even though I think that that feeling I had that felt almost physical was just coming from the depth of my longing for her, right? That I was thinking of her and longing for her so much that it felt like she was standing behind me. But there's this little piece of me that's, you know, the opposite of the pragmatic rationalist that goes, maybe she was, and maybe Baca was visiting you in those dreams. And, and I, I think it's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have it both ways, right? And, and whatever, whatever way you understand reality, um, there's, and whether it's like, you know, whether these visitations are like just a product of our unconscious mind and our desires and our longings, or whether they had some kind of tangible reality, they still have the same meaning, you know, and, and it's still a beautiful thing. That's right. It's a gift. And that's what your dream said. And it doesn't, yeah. and I, what I love about them is they, as you're saying, they put people into this gray area where mm. it's about sitting with the mystery of it all and sitting with the feeling. Mm -hmm. And it's not really, you'll never be able to decide if there is or isn't. Like, that's a belief. You can't test that. And so it's all based on sort of this feeling. And I think there's beauty in sitting with the mystery of life because there's it's all around us, even with sleeping. We don't even under, fully understand it or even dreams. So there's so much mystery in our lives that we almost just put to the side and don't look at or sit with. But, you know, like just how we're even here or talking or communicating, babies being born so much mystery that we just really don't sit with and and appreciate and i think that's the same thing with these dreams is like to sit with this appreciation of what just happened and how it's different from your other dreams and that's what you're saying is that not all your dreams were like this but these were a little different and i think that's that's a beauty beauty of mm -hmm. that as we're wrapping up the show one of the last questions we like to ask is if you could have a dream tonight of baka what would that look like to you oh that's really cool ah uh... Let's see. It's funny because you had mentioned the, the question, but I was thinking it was going to be if I could have a dream of anyone else that I'd lost. But if I had a dream of Baca, you know, I think I the, the, the dreams that I had about her, you know, as part of that pattern were very kind of, you know, joyful and euphoric. And, you know, the very last dream, which... I didn't even talk about with you guys today, but it was it sort of felt almost like she was resurrected and it just felt so emotionally powerful. But I think at this point, if I had a dream about her, I want to be able to just have a conversation just in a very ordinary way and just sort of see like, you know, I, I was, uh, how old was I? It would have been 21, I guess, when she died. And I'm 55 now. So what would Baca say to me as a 55 year old and what would we talk about and you know uh, even if she hadn't died when she did she wouldn't still be alive now but it's like just to kind of you know imagine the magic of like what that could be like for my 55 year old self to talk to Baca I think that would be the, the cool dream to have about her did uh, did she make something special for you guys to eat or did was there something that you remember that you loved a lot that she made yes she made so many things she um she made this bread that we called pogacha, which was just a very simple bread. And she made a, a cookie that we called shushin. And my husband's Italian, and his mom made the same cookie, and was, she called it crostoli. And I once brought some of her crostoli to a class I was teaching. And um, every kid of every race in that class 
said that their family made those co- those cookies. And I remember particularly <laughs> a girl who was from India, like saying it. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. Right? It's like we've got the same cookie. We just all have a different name for it. Um, but she also made this um, cake, which she called in her English, just white cake. <laughs> it was just like a simple white vanilla cake. But she would, when she wouldn't ice it, she would take, she had these like moon-shaped cookie cutters and after the, she'd make like the single layer cake and then she'd take the cookie cutter and she'd cut it into these little moons. And when she died, she had made one of these and there was a plate of these little moons. And I remember the first time coming back to her house after she'd gone to the hospital and walking in and this plate of these cakes sitting there on her dining room table and just, you know, oh, the the overwhelming feeling of loss and then like picking up one of them and taking a bite of it and it just feeling like, simultaneously beautiful and horrible because it would be the last cake she would make and anyways um yeah so i i've never had that cake since i'm sure we she i don't know she made up a lot of her recipes so i don't know if it's written down anywhere but it was just a very simple kind of like a pound cake almost but my mom had never made the the bread when when her mother was alive the pogacha and so that year that my grandmother died my mom made her first pogacha and i have a really beautiful picture of her holding her first pogacha and and she was very proud of that and my mom's made it over the years since then we also had like these walnut walnut loaves that my grandmother would make and uh it's it's sort of like a swirled loaf, fairly common in Eastern European cultures. I moved into a Polish neighborhood in, in Toronto and discovered that I could go and buy the, uh, we called it Orsznica. So mm. anyways, many great food memories and some of which I can still, you know, partake of in different ways. You know, if my mom makes the, the traditional recipes and I haven't learned to make them yet. So now my mom's getting older and I really, I really need to do that, learn those recipes myself. But uh, not to put words in your mouth, but I think that'd be a great setting for a grief dream is maybe you and your grandmother over some tea are are sharing some of these beautiful uh, mooncakes. Yes, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Yeah, or even making them together. Ah. Yeah, I'll try and seed that dream. Thank you for that. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, I hope you get that and, and... yeah, I hope it's in that house too. That, that, Ooh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it will be. That house turns up all the time in my dreams. It's it's really interesting. I, I, a lot of houses that I've lived in do too. I, I don't know if that's a common thing for lots of other people too, but um, the house I used to live in in Toronto will turn up. And then I often have these dreams and it hasn't happened so much with Baca's house, but with the other houses I've lived in over time that there's secret rooms that I didn't know existed mm-hmm. and I discover them and then it's, so cool it's like oh my god what am i going to do with this room or look all my books are here it's so beautiful (laughs) so yeah it's kind of fun yeah and that just shows you know your creative mind and and how it works and i think like you know again just what you've done with this film as as along along with your husband it's incredible because again it goes along with what we're doing and we always try to tell that story and you're you're an amazing storyteller telling that story of like you know, going through the grief, going through the loss of your grandmother, and then talking about the dreams, you know, that that's incredibly important to us. And, and we saw that and you did a fantastic job because it's not easy. It's incredibly hard, right? Go back in time to, you know, make a movie with all these pictures and all this. But, you know, you did it seamlessly. You threw in so much beautiful music uh, and magic to uh-huh. it. 
that it really turned into a film. You know, I love the music again, just not to go too long, but the whimsy of it, you know, there's, there's, and you did actually, you captured that moment because you talked about how when you were trying to shoot the scene of the dream, the first dream, I think you captured that moment of absurdity and uh, a little bit of dread in it. Because that was the because because when I think it was a photo and you kind of zoomed into the photo and something, but maybe it was your grandmother's eyes or maybe it was the music, but something made me go, "Wow, that's perfect for that." I'm really setting. glad I'm really glad you mentioned the music just because um, it's such an important part of the movie, and our composer uh, Daniel Ross he did such an amazing job on it. Um, it's we, you might have noticed that we don't use any realistic sound in the movie. Like we didn't record sound during, well, we did record sound during the demolition, but we chose not to use it. Mm. And uh, we really, the the musical score is really like another voice in, in the film that just kind of underscores what's going on emotionally. And then also, you know, we wanted there to be moments where it felt sort of playful or surreal so that it wouldn't be just a nostalgic, melancholy piece, but something that had, you know, other colors to it. And and Dan was just so amazing as a composer. He worked so closely with us, and he did so many versions of things. We probably drove him crazy at times, kind of saying, oh, you know, a little bit more like this, a little bit more like that. And But he just, he did such an amazing job. Like, I, I'm just so moved by the music, and I feel like so lucky to have had him as a collaborator because I feel like the music just sort of takes everything to a whole other level, and and uh, so, anyways, I'm glad I'm glad that you responded to it and and uh, noted it because it's it's really critical. It wouldn't be the movie that it is without that score. Yeah, I think so too. I think it just weaves in appropriately, and and it, it really it's another element that helps you kind of tell that story uh, along with your voice and along with the, the pictures. Um, Marlene, this has been an amazing interview. I know you have to go. Could you give out your uh, handles and where people can find the movie? Yes, absolutely. So our website is at www.dreamsofthedead, all one word, all lowercase, .com. And uh, one of the things that we have going on on the website is is a page called The Memory Project. And, you know, one of the themes of the, the film is that, you know, these tangible uh, mementos, things that are left behind and places that are left behind are really what connects us often to people that we've lost. And so we're inviting people to take a photograph of something or a, uh, an object or a place that connects them to someone they've lost and just post a little story about that. And uh, we've got some wonderful stories on there already. We're looking forward to getting more. And, and I would also say that, you know, when we constructed that page, I should have, the invitation should have also been to post a dream, you know, and, and there's a place to put an image. So if there's some kind of image that um, pertains to a grief dream you've had and people want to post on there, that I would totally welcome that as well. Um, because it's it's uh, sometimes I with the the film it's like okay what's the larger theme the dreams or the connection to object and place I mean it's all mm. sort of part of it um, so yes and we're on Facebook too Dreams of the Dead on Instagram again Dreams of the Dead is is uh, the the what, the thing to look for and uh, Twitter although that's probably where we sort of are the least active but. Uh, you know, we're, the film is right now available on the National Screen Institute's uh, online short film festival. So if you go to our website, you'll find the link there um, and also on the Facebook page so that people can watch the, the film. It's 18 minutes. Amazing stuff. Thank you so much. 
It's been such a pleasure to talk to you guys and be part of the conversation you're having. So thanks for inviting me on and uh, all the best with, with your own ongoing research and exploration. Thank you so much. Oh, I just wanted to actually, yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. I just want to say uh, I checked out the uh, Memories Project page and um, it's fantastic. Like, you know, I, people are posting on there already. I Someone was like, oh, this is, uh, you know, my grandfather's cigarette case. And it's just like cool little case. But then they wrote a little blurb about it. So I, I loved it a lot. I enjoyed it. Uh, so kudos to that. That's a great thing to kind of bring in a community around that. Um, so yeah. Marlene, thank you again for this interview. It's been fantastic. Please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. Uh, we did add a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And uh, as always, we like to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.